So Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to start with a famous painting. The Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. Currently housed in the Louvre in Paris. But in 1956 it was vandalised. A woman from Montauban, where it was at the time, threw acid at the painting. And then late in the same year, a young man threw a rock at the Mona Lisa and uh, damaged the paint on her elbow, which was later restored. And so today, if you went to see the Mona Lisa in Paris, you would see it behind bulletproof glass as they attempt to protect it from any further attempts at vandalism. My purpose of this illustration is to simply say that some of the most beautiful objects that we can find are also some of the most fragile and some of the most easily damaged. And that's true as well of the church, which we'll be coming to later. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. The church is something special and precious to him, as it should be to us all. It's also a church under threat from various different dangers. In chapter 1, we saw that the church was perhaps under threat from persecution. Paul himself, as we've been reminded, had been arrested, and uh, the whole attitude of the Roman Empire towards Christians was beginning to deteriorate. And so Paul writes to the church in Philippi uh, something of how to respond to this threat and this situation. Then in chapter 3, which may be a little spoiler for next week, I won't say too much, we see the church under threat from false teachers and how Paul responds to that threat. And here in chapter 2, I believe the theme is more the church under threat from what I would call relationship problems or personality clashes, or quite simply, people behaving badly. Let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 27, where Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I believe as we move through chapter 2, Paul is explaining what it means to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ of our Lord Jesus Christ. But going back to my illustration of beauty and fragility, we see something of that in the verses, the first four verses of chapter 2, where particularly in verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds the believers of something of the beauty and the benefits of church life, of being united together with each other, and with Jesus. And so he speaks of this sense of encouragement and a sense of comfort that we can have through participating in church life. He speaks of this fellowship, one with another, fulfilling friendships, expressions of compassion, expressions of practical love that believers can have towards each other. And so we could go on. Jesus Christ unites to himself a new people, and this people is a special people, a wonderful people, a people who are to reflect his beauty in the way that we conduct ourselves one with another. Paul then goes on to 
encourage us to work at unity. Unity and a good sense of being together is something that needs to be protected and worked at uh, in an ongoing way. They shouldn't be neglected. They shouldn't be taken for granted because there are potential enemies waiting to jump out of the dark recesses of our own hearts. Yes, the church is beautiful, but that beauty can be fragile and churches can be easily damaged. And some of the things that uh, can pose a threat to church life are mentioned by Paul. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then in verse 14, we see a couple of other dangers that can poison church life, where Paul says, do everything without grumbling and without arguing. So, no complaining or grumbling or arguing. This word, selfish ambition, that appears in verse 3, I just want to say something about. Um, When thinking about this this text, I thought it was the word, what rivalry, because I'm used to working with my French Bible where it is rivalries. And then I saw in the English Standard Version, it's rivalries as well. And the Revised Version translates the word faction. So all of this suggested I'd better go back to the Greek. And um, I depend upon a Greek dictionary. I don't speak Greek myself. But the Greek dictionary I consulted suggests that Paul pulled this word out of the ancient world of Greek politics. Now, modern Greek politics is a bit of a mess itself. But ancient Greek politics was perhaps the same. And this word in the original Greek suggests those who have a self-seeking pursuit of power by unfair means. So this selfish ambition denotes those who are self-seeking, looking for power, and doing so in an unfair or unpleasant way. And I think we can all concede that politics, the world of politics, in Britain, as in many other countries, can become rather ugly and ruthless. And what Paul is saying is that the low arts of political intrigue just should not be found in churches. It's interesting, use the word, same word in chapter 1, verse 17, where he says that some actually preach the gospel for this same motivation. And then we read in chapter 4, verse 4, and I'm sorry for another spoiler, but Paul encourages two women, Euodia and Syntyche, to get on with each other. And I just ask myself whether these two women were beginning to have this mentality of rivalry and they were beginning to be different groups, one supporting one lady and one supporting the other lady, and that this was going to be a danger to the whole beauty of the fellowship in, in Philippi. And so Paul just tells them, look, sort this problem out before it gets worse. And then Paul mentions complaining and grumbling, which is often accompanied by unfair criticism, 
And these attitudes too can poison church life, relationships, and a sense of community. Now here at Magdalen Road, we are in a time of transition. It's a challenging period of change with different projects being launched and other projects being studied and changes in leadership and all kinds of things. I want to suggest that it's in such demanding times as these that we need to be extra vigilant because in such times these potential dangers can possibly resurface. Personally, I haven't seen anything of that. I'm maybe not the best place to see It does strike me that there is a very good sense of unity and working together and support and good relationships here in our church. But reading this chapter this morning should just call us to be watchful and vigilant about the ongoing dangers and to examine our own hearts and just be careful. But how does Paul remedy these threats? The first one, and the one I'm going to spend the most amount of time on, appears in verses 5 through to 11, where Paul, who wants to protect the unity and the quality of fellowship and relationships in the church, yes, he wants us to have that attitude of humble, selfless service, of putting the good of the whole community above our own personal interests, but he does so primarily, he encourages this primarily by pointing us to the Lord Jesus and his example. Paul wants us to have the same outlook or the same mentality or the same attitude as the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have these wonderful verses 6 to 11, which commentators suggest is probably an ancient Christian hymn that Paul has chosen to include in his letter at this point. It's a hymn with a very developed, a very deep theology of Jesus Christ. A hymn which celebrates his divinity and also his authentic humanity. A hymn which celebrates his exaltation and his future glorious returns. And all of these things could be looked at in much depth But why did Paul include this in his letter? Well, he included it to encourage us to have that attitude of humble service in the local church. And so that's what we're going to concentrate on this morning. See, God the Father and God the Son, they were not rivals competing against each other to see who was the best, to see who was the most glorious. I'm sure most of you find the very idea quite shocking. And it is, but they're not like that. God the Father and God the Son worked together in a harmonious way to a common and greater end, that of the salvation of the church, of reconciliation, of creating a new people. The very idea that the Father and the Son would argue about who would become incarnate is quite unthinkable and inconceivable. Jesus did leave the glory of the heavenly realms. He became 
man. And as he did so, he did so voluntarily. And as he did so, he relinquished, he gave up aspects of his heavenly status and his heavenly rights. He left heaven to come to this miserable and cruel world. And he accepted that certain limits be placed upon his divinity so that he would be a real, authentic man with all our human limitations. It's true, isn't it? We live in a very rights-orientated society, very me-first. And God the Son could have had rights. He did have rights, but he refused to use them. He could have called upon an army of angels to rescue him from the cross, but he didn't because he had something greater and higher in view. Jesus, as we read the Gospels, put other people before himself. He put other people first. He understood others. He respected them, he served them, and he loved them. This wasn't always convenient, and it placed huge demands upon his energy and upon his time. For Jesus, the act of serving others meant giving up comfort and ease. It even involved suffering, suffering that would lead him ultimately to his death and one of the most humiliating and brutal deaths that one could endure, that of crucifixion. Just suggest that you reread one day the Gospels in the light of this hymn quoted by Paul and think through afresh some of these themes Jesus' self denial, the sacrifices he made, the suffering he endured, and his motion, his motivation rather, the common good, the salvation of men and women like you and me. So in this hymn, first of all, we do see this downward trajectory from the heavenly realms, down, 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 until you can't go any further, death upon the cross. But then in the following verses, we see an upward trajectory, resurrection, exaltation, and future glory. Jesus is Lord. And we see that that is important as well. So then Paul wants us to protect and enhance the beauty of the church. He wants us to do that by having the attitude which serves one another. Service in the church, as I'm sure you're all aware, does involve a degree of giving some things up. It does does place demands upon our time and our energy, It's sometimes inconvenient, it's sometimes uncomfortable, and at times there will be opposition or suffering. And yet that's the kind of example that Paul calls us to follow, an example we find in Jesus. And so if there are times that we find ourselves competing with others to be the best, or to be the most visible, the most influential, then we not only need to look along, take a hard look at ourselves, 
but more importantly, a long, hard look at Jesus. If we find ourselves serving but grumbling and complaining about it, feeling resentful or bitter, then again we need to ask ourselves some questions and above all, take a long, hard look at Jesus. It's true that service can lead to, yes, weariness, demotivation, lots of other negative attitudes. But let's not take it out on each other. Rather, let's come before Jesus and look to him and his example. But let's remember also this second part of the hymn, which reminds us of resurrection, new life, exaltation. And I'm sure that Paul included it deliberately. Because humble service, suffering service, isn't the end of the story. The end of our story is resurrection, to be raised with Jesus and to enjoy fellowship with him eternally in the new creation. And when we're finding it tough, we need to remember that at the end of the day, that is our sure and certain hope. And as we consider that hope before us, I trust that that will re-energize us re-envision us and help us to persevere and to endure what it means to serve in a humble and sacrificial way. How low do we make progress? We come to verses 12 and 13. Paul sets the standard very high. And maybe you're thinking to yourself now, well, He's asking an awful lot of us. Surely it's beyond what we can do ourselves. And then we come to verses 12 and 13 in this picture of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. I thought we were meant to love God, not be afraid of him. And if we're to work, what's this about God working in us? Is Is it us? Is it God? How does that fit together? Is Paul getting confused? First of all, on the fear and trembling issue, I think in the context, this may have more to do with the question, well, what would the church be like? What would our church be like if we fell dramatically short of what Paul is encouraging us to do? What would it be like here if we didn't care for one another? What would it be like here if we were divided or if all you heard after the, um, after the service as you're waiting for your cup of tea was grumbling and complaining. Would you want a church like that? Of course you don't. But we need to have that sense of, of fear that will keep us from acting in a way that will make church like that. A long time ago in France, I experienced a church that went down that road, and I probably still bear the scars today. And I can tell you, I tremble at the idea of ever going there again. And I pray that in God's grace, I would not be responsible for ever going down that road myself. 
Some more modern commentators, such as Ralph Martin in his commentary on Philippians, suggest that this working out of salvation is not our individual salvation, but is a collective church community salvation. I can see where he's coming from. I'm not yet 100% convinced. I'm going to take his line this morning, as it does follow Paul's whole encouragement that we're to serve the church and, um, and protect its beauty. And so this sense of working out our salvation, according to Ralph Martin, means a working together for the good of the church, for its integrity, its beauty, and its enduring value and worth. And to be honest, any church that doesn't take Paul's teaching seriously is unlikely to endure for very long. And that church I was involved in in France disappeared. And if you knew what we'd been to, you'd understand why. But going back to this idea of beauty and fragility, imagine that you've got a job as a cleaner at Blenheim Palace. And you had to go around cleaning all the dust off the fine pottery every day. You know, really valuable antiques, some real pieces of, of valuable art. And I think you'd approach that task with a sense of dread and, yes, trembling. You don't want to break anything, do you? You'd have that sense of apprehension. You hardly dare touch anything. And for that reason, you take the task seriously. You take great care and precaution to follow all the instructions that you are given. If you prefer a more manly illustration, imagine you've the chance to drive a Ferrari. Well, if I had the chance, I would approach it, yes, with a sense of fear and trembling. It's the last time you ought to have an accident is when you've been given the chance to drive a Ferrari. And so you take great care about it. But we should have this similar fear of bringing the church into disrepute by bad behaviour, by spoiling relationships. And this fear should lead us to taking great care and being very careful about taking seriously Paul's encouragements and exhortations to love one another, to serve one another to put others above ourselves. We still have that question, how do we make progress? Which is, I think, why Paul compliments this exhortation to take things seriously with the reminder that God is at work in us. When we take God's word seriously, he will be at work in us, accomplishing his purposes. And his purpose is, amongst other things, to create a new people and a new community that are growing to be more and more like Christ. So I think this verse 13, where it says that God works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes, should give us that sense of optimism and hope and confidence. God is at work in his church. He's at work in you. He's at work in us. And when God is at work, he's in the business of making that which appears impossible become possible. If you think it's impossible to live up to Paul's teaching, 
or by ourselves it is, but God is at work in you and in me to make that very thing possible. It's not out of reach because God will fulfill his purposes in his church when we take his word seriously. I sometimes compare God's work in a church to that of an architect or a builder renovating a house. Well, if houses had feelings, if they could feel pain, just imagine what it would be like if someone came along and renovated it, ripping down walls, taking out windows, all sorts of stuff. I don't think they would enjoy it, but the whole purpose of renovating a house is to make it more functional, more attractive, more valuable. And maybe with all the changes in the church at the present, you feel a bit like we're being renovated. It's tough. But let's remember that God is at work, and if he is at work in us, it's for good purposes and not bad. It's to make us an even better local church than before. It's to create an even better community of God's people. And as we take him seriously, he will achieve much in us and through us and around us. My final point, I'm not going to the end of the chapter, and this will hopefully be relatively brief. As we become ever more an ever more beautiful expression of God's new people, Paul says that we will become like stars in the night sky, verses 14 to 16. Paul wants local churches in Philippi, in Oxford, to be like stars in the night sky. And stars can be seen because they are different from the space around them. Stars can be seen because they give out light. Paul wants churches to be different from the world around. Paul wants churches to be visibly different from the world around them. And we will be different when we put into practice this kind of humble, loving, sacrificial service. We will be different when we put the common good above individual interests. We will be different when we abstain from complaining and grumbling and criticism and rivalry and all the rest. We will be like stars in the night sky. To push the boundaries of Paul's astronomical illustration, do we want to be a star shining where people can see something of the light of the Lord Jesus Christ? The alternative is to be a black hole which lets out no light. A black hole where people can't see the light of Jesus. It's a very stark choice. Of course, there's a lot of in-between. But let's make it our aim to be a star shining brightly in East Oxford and further afield. I'm not going to deal with the rest of the chapter today. Paul mentions, except to say that Paul mentions two of his co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
and basically holds them up. He recommends them to the church in Philippi and says why he's sending them to them. But he does hold them up as an example of the kind of thing he's been teaching about in the rest of the chapter. So if you want to find out more about Timothy and Epaphroditus and why Paul considered them humble servants, then I would encourage you to read again that chapter and to think for yourselves how you can learn from Paul and Epaphroditus. And so we're to conclude. And I must admit I was struggling to find a a nice conclusion that would be memorable and help to uh, summarize everything we've, we've said today. But then I remembered my choice of song for the end of the service. And it struck me that there could be no better conclusion than the song that we're going to sing together. So rather having the preacher say the conclusion today, we're going to sing the conclusion together. You may have predicted it. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served but to serve and give your life that we might live. A hymn that was, I'm sure, inspired by Philippians chapter 2. So let's sing this conclusion together and may it be our prayer.